Chapter 15, Part 7 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 15, Part 7. The Empire of Dionysus Having made himself master of all Greek Sicily, the lord of Syracuse began to extend the compass of his ambition beyond the bounds of the island. He began to plan the conquest of Greek Italy. Hitherto, the Sicilian cities, though they had constant dealings with the colonies of the Italian mainland, had never sought there, or anywhere, out of their own island, a field for conquest or aggression. The restriction of Siciliot ambition to Sicilian territory was the other side of the doctrine preached by Hermocrates, that the Siciliots should not allow Greeks from beyond the sea to interfere in the affairs of Sicily. We are reminded of the policy which has been followed on a greater scale by the United States on the American continent. Here, as in other things, Dionysus was an innovator. He set the example of enterprises of conquest beyond the sea. Into the enterprise of Italian conquest, he was naturally led on by his dealings with the fellow cities of the Strait, Masana, and Regium. For Masana was a city once more. It had been rebuilt by Dionysus himself. He settled in it colonists from Locri and Medma in Italy, and 600 Messenians from Old Greece, who had been wandering about homeless since Sparta had driven them from Napoctus. But this favor to the Messenians displeased the Spartans, and as Dionysus claved to the friendship of Sparta, he yielded to their protests. He removed the exiles from Masana, but he made for them a secure, though less illustrious, home. He founded the city of Tyndarus on a high hill to the west of Mylae, and fortified it strongly. The walls and towers, which still remain, are a good specimen of the fortifications of Dionysus. The restoration of Masana and the foundation of Tyndarus were no pleasant sight to the Ionian city across the strait. These new cities seemed to Regium, a Syracuse and menace. The men of Regium sought to make a counter-move by founding a city themselves between Tyndarus and Masana. They gathered together the exiles from Catane and Naxos, and settled them on the peninsula of Mylae, but the settlement lasted only for a moment. Almost immediately, the town of Mylae was captured by its neighbors of Masana, and the exiles were driven out to resume their wanderings. Apart from his political hostility to Regium, Dionysus is said to have borne it a private grudge. He had asked the men of Regium to give him one of their maidens to wife, and they had answered that they would give him none but the hangman's daughter. Locri, Regium's neighbor, then granted him the request, which Regium refused. Locri was his faithful ally, and now, when the conclusion of peace with Carthage had left him free to pursue his Italian designs, it was Locri that he made his base of operations. The first object was to capture Regium. Its position on the strait dictated this apart from all motives of revenge or hatred. Accordingly, starting from Locri with an army and fleet, he laid siege to Regium by land and sea. But the confederate cities of the Italian coast came to the assistance of a member of their league. The Italian armament worsted the fleet of Dionysus in or near the strait, and Dionysus escaped with difficulty to the opposite coast. Regium was thus relieved, and Dionysus now directed his hostilities against the Italian federation. He made an alliance with the Lucanians, to the intent that they and he should carry on a war in common against the Italiot cities, they by land and he by sea. In accordance with this treaty, the Lucanians invaded the land of Thurai. The men of Thurai retorted by invading Lucania in considerable force, but they sustained a crushing defeat at the hands of the barbarians. 
Most of the Thurians were slain, but some escaped to the shore and swam out to ships which they described coasting along. By a curious chance, the ships were the fleet of Syracuse, and Leptines, the tyrant's brother, was once more the commander. He received the fugitives and did more. He landed and ransomed them from the Lucanians. He did even more than this. He arranged an armistice between the Lucanians and the Italians, and acting thus, he clearly went beyond his powers. He had been sent to cooperate with the Lucanians against the Italians, and he had no right to conclude an armistice in such circumstances without consulting his brother. It is not surprising that Dionysus deposed him from the command. In the following year, Dionysus took the field himself. He opened the campaign by laying siege to Colonia, the northern neighbor of Locri. The Italiots, under the active lead of Croton, collected an army of 15,000 foot and 2,000 horse, and entrusted the command to Haloris, a brave exile of Syracuse, who burned with hatred against the tyrant who had banished him. The federal army marched forth from Croton to relieve Colonia, and when Dionysus learned of its approach, he decided to go forth to meet it. For his own forces, 20,000 foot and 3,000 horse were considerably superior. Luck favored him. Near the river Eliporus, which flows into the sea, between Colonia and Croton, the tyrant heard that the enemy were encamped, within a distance of five miles, and he drew up his men in battle array. Haloris, less well informed, rode forward in front of his main army, with a company of five hundred men, and suddenly found himself in the presence of the Syracusan host. He did not quail or flee. Sending back a message to hasten the rest of his army, he and his little band stood firm against the onset of the invaders. Haloris fell himself, and the main army, coming up company by company in haste and disorder, was easily routed by Dionysus. Ten thousand fugitives escaped to a high hill, but it was a poor hill of refuge, for there was no spring of water, and they could not hold out. The next morning they besought Dionysus, who kept watch around the hill throughout the night, to set them free for a ransom. Dionysus refused. He would accept only unreserved surrender but he was cruel only to grant them a greater mercy than they could themselves have dared to ask. When they came down the hill, Dionysus himself told their number, with a wand as they filed past him, and each man deemed that his doom would be bondage, if not death. But Dionysus let them all depart, even without exacting a ransom. This act of mercy, which was notable as compared not only with other acts of the tyrant, but with the ordinary practice of the age, produced a great sensation. There is no reason for imputing it to a magnanimous impulse. It was a deliberate act of policy. Dionysus did not wish to be generous, but he wished to be regarded as generous and win over the Italiot cities. For this purpose, he made up his mind to sacrifice 10,000 ransoms. His wisdom was soon approved. The communities to which the captives belonged gratefully voted him golden crowns and made separate treaties with him. In this way, he accomplished his purpose. With Regium, Colonia, and Hipponian, he still remained at war, but these states were now isolated, and the league was broken up. Regium bought off his hostilities for the time by surrendering its fleet. Colonia was captured and abolished, and its territory given to Locri. Hipponian was likewise taken and destroyed, but the peoples of both these cities were transplanted to Syracuse, and became Syracusan citizens. But Dionysus had not yet finished with Regium. He created a pretext for renewing hostilities, and he laid siege to the city. The men of Regium had now no friends to help them, but under their general, Phaeton, whom the tyrant vainly endeavored to bribe, they held out for ten months, and were reduced to surrender in the end by starvation. 
Dionysus accepted ransoms for those who could find the money. The rest of the inhabitants were sold. Phaeton was selected for special vengeance. He was scourged through the army and then drowned with all his kin. Thus Dionysus gained what hitherto had been one of his most pressing desires, possession of the city, which had so long hated and defied him. He was now master of both sides of the strait, and held the fortress which was the bulwark of Greek Italy. Eight years later he captured Croton, and his power in Italy reached its greatest height. But in the meanwhile, the unresting lord of Syracuse had turned his eyes to a region of enterprise further afield. The needs of his treasury, if nothing else, bent his attention to commerce. We touch here upon that side of ancient enterprise which has been persistently and provokingly withdrawn from our vision, because the writers of antiquity never thought of lingering on the ordinary business transactions which were happening every day before their eyes. Many things that are now dark would be cleared up if we had more knowledge of the operations of Greek trade. Dionysus saw an opening for Sicilian commerce along the eastern and western coasts of the Hadriatic Sea, in whose waters the ships of Corsera, Athens, and Taras hitherto had chiefly plied. He set about making the Hadriatic a Syracusan lake by means of settlements and alliances. He founded settlements in Apulia, which he probably hoped ultimately to incorporate in his dominion. He settled a colony and fixed a naval station in the island of Issa, whose importance as a strategic post has been more than once illustrated in subsequent history. He took part with the Pereans in colonizing Pharos, on an island not far from Issa. A Syracusan colony was planted at Ancon, and even if the colonists were, as they are said to have been, exiles and foes of Dionysus, we may be sure that the merchant ships of Syracuse were welcome at the wharfs of Ancon. The northern goal of these merchant ships was near the mouth of the Po, at a spot where there was already a mark for diffusing Greek merchandise into Cisalpine Gaul and beyond the Alps into northern Europe. This was the Venetian Hadria, city of marshes and canals, which was now colonized by Dionysus, to be in some sort, as has been aptly observed, a forerunner of Venice itself. It was in one of these outlying posts of the Hellenic world that the historian to whom we owe our best knowledge of the Sicilian history of this time, probably wrote his works. Philistus had held posts of high trust under Dionysus, and had even been the commandant of the Syracusan citadel, but in later years he incurred his master's displeasure, or suspicion, and chose as his place of banishment some city on the Hadriatic, possibly Hadria. In connection with these Hadriatic designs, touching which we have only the most fragmentary records, Dionysus formed an alliance with Alcetus of Molossia, whose unstable position in his own kingdom made him willing to be a dependent on the strong ruler of Syracuse. Thus Dionysus made his influence predominant at the gates of the Hadriatic. The Syracusan Empire, we may survey it, when it reached its widest extent, consisted, like most other empires, partly of immediate dominion and partly of dependent communities. The immediate dominion was both insular and continental. It included the greater portion of Sicily and the southern peninsula of Italy, perhaps as far north as the river Crathus. But this dominion was not homogeneous, and the relations of its various parts to the government of Syracuse. There was first of all the old territory of the Syracusan Republic. There were secondly a number of military settlements, an institution of Dionysus which has been compared to the military colonies of Rome. Such, for example, was Croton on the mainland, such in Sicily were Henna and Messana. Such was Issa in the Hadriatic. Outside these direct subjects was the third class of the allied cities, which, 
though absolutely subject to the power of Dionysus, had still the management of their less important affairs in their own hands. To this class belong the old Greek cities of Sicily, like Gela and Camarina, new colonies like Tyndarus, some Sicil states like Agirium and Erbita. Beyond the sphere of direct dominion stretched the sphere of dependencies, the allies whose bond of dependence was rather implied than formally expressed. Here belong the cities of the Italian League, Thurai and the rest north of the Crathus River. Here belong some of the Iapogean communities in the heel of Italy, and here the kingdom of Melosia beyond the Ionian Sea, and some Illyrian places on the Hadriatic coast. The Crathus may be regarded as the line between the two, the outer and the inner, divisions of the empire of Dionysus, but it is remarkable that at one time he planned a wall and a ditch which should run across the isthmus from Scalation to the nearest point on the other sea, a distance of about 20 miles, and thus sever, as it were, the toe of Italy from the mainland, and make it a sort of second Sicily. The acquisition and maintenance of this empire, the building of ships and shipsheds, the payment of mercenary soldiers, the vast fortifications of Syracuse, both of the island and of the hill, all this, along with the ordinary expenses of government and the state of a despot's court, demanded an enormous outlay. To meet this outlay, Dionysus was forced to resort to extraordinary expedients. In the first place, he oppressed the Syracusans by a burdensome taxation. He imposed special taxes for war, special taxes for building ships, and he introduced an honorious tax on cattle. It is said that the citizens paid yearly into the treasury at the rate of 20% of their capital. In the second place, he had recourse to a various expedients affecting the coinage. Thus, he issued debased fordrucum, pieces of tin instead of silver. And in one case of financial need, he paid a debt by placing on each coin an official mark, which rendered it worth double of its true value. But such expedients were not enough. Dionysus was an unscrupulous rifler of temples. Thus, when he took Croton, he carried off the treasures of a temple of Hera. In an earlier year, he sailed like a pirate to Etruria, swooped down on a rich temple at the port of Agila, and bore off booty which amounted to the value of 1,500 talents. The plunder of a sanctuary on distant barbarian shores might seem a small thing, but no awe of divine displeasure restrained Dionysus from planning a raid upon the holiest place of Hellenic worship. He formed the design of robbing the treasury of Delphi itself, with Illyrian and Melosian help, but the plan miscarried. It is little wonder that the tyrant had an evil repute in the mother country. End of chapter 15, part 7. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. By John Bagnell Burry, Chapter 15, Part 8. Death of Dionysus, Estimate of His Work. It was only for a moment that the dominion of the Syracusan despot reached its extreme limits. He had hardly won the city and lands of Croton when his borders fell back in the west of his own island. A new war with Carthage had broken out, and this time, if Dionysus was not the first to draw the sword, he at least provoked hostilities. He entered into alliances with some of the cities dependent on Carthage, possibly Segesta or Eryx. Of the campaigns we know almost nothing except their result. First we find Carthage helping the Italiots with whom the tyrant was at war. Next we find a Carthaginian force in Sicily commanded by Mago. In a battle fought at Kabbalah, a place unknown, the Syracusans won a great victory and Mago was killed. While negotiations for peace were proceeding, another battle was fought at Cronion, 
near Panormus, and fate reversed her reward. Dionysus was defeated with terrible loss, and compelled to make a disadvantageous peace. The boundary of Greek against Punic Sicily was withdrawn from the river Mazaras to the river Helesus. This meant that the deliverer of Salinas and Thermae gave back those cities to the mercies of the barbarians. At the mouth of the Helesus, the old Greek foundation of Heraclea Manoa now became, under the corresponding Punic name, Ras Melkart, one of the chief strongholds of the Punic power. Just ten years later, ten years in which the history of Sicily is a blank, Dionysus essayed to retrieve the losses which the disastrous Battle of Cronion had brought upon him. He made war once more upon Carthage, and for the second time he invaded Punic Sicily. He delivered Greek Salinas, he won Campanian Entala, and captured Elemian Eryx, along with its haven, Drapanon. He then attempted, we may almost say, to repeat the great exploit of his first war. There was no more Amoitia to capture, but he laid siege to Lilybium, which had taken Moitia's place. But he was compelled to abandon the attempt, the fortress was too strong and his ill success was soon crowned by the loss of a large part of his fleet, which was carried out of the harbor of Draponin by an enterprising Carthaginian admiral. It was the last undertaking of the great ruler of Sicily. He did not live to conclude the peace which probably confirmed the Helesus as the boundary between Greek and Barbarian. His death was connected with a side of his character, which has not yet come before us. The tyrant of Syracuse has a place, though it is a small place, in literary history. He was a dramatic poet, and he frequently competed with his tragedies in the Athenian theater. He won third, he won even second prizes, but his dearest ambition was to be awarded a first place. That desire was at length fulfilled. His failure at Lilibium and the loss of his ships at Draponin were compensated by the tidings that the first prize had been assigned to his ransom of Hector at the Linnaean festival. He celebrated his joy by an unwanton carouse. His intemperance was followed by a fever, and a soropific drought was administered to him which induced the sleep of death. Dionysus did not stand wholly aloof from the politics of elder Greeks. His alliance with Sparta, and the help which he received from her at the siege of Syracuse, involved him in obligations to her, which he fulfilled on more than one occasion. And in the regions of Corsera, his empire came into direct contact with the spheres of some of the states of the mother country. But these political relations are an unimportant part of his reign. His reign, as a whole, lies apart from the contemporary politics of elder Greece. Yet, from some points of view, it possesses more significance in Grecian and in European history than the contemporary history of Sparta and Athens. In the first place, Dionysus stands out as one of the most prominent champions of Europe in the long struggle between the Asiatic and the European for the possession of Sicily. He did what no champion had done before. He carried the war into the enemy's precinct. He well nigh achieved what it was reserved for an Italian commonwealth to achieve actually, the reclaiming of the whole island for Europe, the complete expulsion of the Semitic intruder. In the second place, he stands out as the man who raised his own city, not only to dominion over all Greek Sicily, but to a transmarine dominion which made her the most powerful city in the Greek world, the most potent state in Europe. The purely Sicilian policy is flung aside and Syracuse becomes a continental power. Laying one hand on that peninsula to which her own island geographically belongs, and stretching out the other to the lands beyond the Hadriatic. And thirdly, this empire, though it is thinly disguised like the later empire of Rome under constitutional forms, is really a monarchical realm. 
which is a foreshadowing of the Macedonian monarchies and an anticipation of a new period in European history. Again in the art of war, Dionysus inaugurated methods which did not come into general use till more than half a century later. Some of his military operations seem to transport us to the age of Alexander the Great and his successors. Dionysus anticipated the age of those monarchs. Statues were set up representing him in the guise of Dionysus, the god by whose name he was called. Here indeed, he did not stand alone among his contemporaries. The Spartan Lysander also had been invested with attributes of divinity. But in one respect, Dionysus was far from being a forerunner of the Macedonian monarchs. He was not an active or deliberate diffuser of Hellenic civilization. On the contrary, he appears rather as an undoer of Hellenic civilization. He destroys Hellenic towns, and he replaces Hellenic by Italian communities. He cultivates the friendship of Gauls and Lucanians to use them against Greeks, not to make them Greeks. This side of the policy of Dionysus, the establishment of Italian settlements in Sicily, it points unintentionally indeed, so far as he was concerned, to the expansion of Italy. It points to the Italian conquest of Sicily, which was to be accomplished more than a century after his death. Dionysus, then, has the significance of a pioneer, but there is something else to be said. Original and successful as he was, great things as he did, we cannot help feeling that he ought to have done greater things still. A master of political wisdom, an originator of daring ideas, a man of endless energy, remarkably temperate in the habits of his life, he was hampered throughout by his unconstitutional position. The nature of tyranny imposed limitations on his work. He had always to consider, first, the security of his own unchartered rule. He could never forget the fact that he was a hated master, he could therefore never devote himself to the accomplishment of any object or the solution of any problem with the undivided zeal which may animate a constitutional prince who need never turn aside to examine the sure foundations of his power. We saw how the tyrant's warfare against Carthage was affected by these personal calculations. The Syracusan tyranny accomplished indeed far more than could have been accomplished by the Syracusan democracy. Dionysus as a tyrant wrought what he could never have wrought as a mere statesman governing by legitimate influence the councils of a free assembly. But he illustrates, and all the more strikingly, as a pioneer of the great monarchies of the future, the truth to which attention has been called before, that the tyrannies and democracies of Greek cities were in their nature not adapted to create and maintain large empires. End of chapter 15, part 8. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Burry, Chapter 15, Part 9. Dionysus the Younger The empire of Dionysus, which he had made fast, to use his own expression, by chains of adamant, a strong army, a strong navy, and strong walls, descended to his son, Dionysus, a youth of feeble character, not without amiable qualities, but of the nature that is easily swayed to good or evil, and is always dependent on advisors. At first he was under the influence of Dion, who had been the most trusted minister of the elder Dionysus in the later part of his reign, holding the office of admiral and allied by a double marriage with the tyrant's family. The tyrant had espoused Dion's sister, Aristomache, and Dion married one of the daughters of this marriage, Arete, his own niece. The other daughter was given to Dionysus, her half-brother. Another man, possessing the pride, wealth, and ability of Dion, might have sought to fling aside Dionysus, 
and if he did not seize the tyranny himself, at all events to secure it for the sons of his sister, the brothers of his wife, Hipparinus and Nicaeus. But Dion was not like other men. His aspirations were loftier and less selfish. His object was not to secure tyranny for any man, but to get rid of tyranny altogether. But this was not to be done by a revolution. The democracy which would have risen on the ruins of the despotism would have been in Dion's eyes as evil a thing for Syracuse as the despotism itself. For Dion had imbibed and thoroughly believed in the political teachings of his friend, Plato the philosopher. His darling project was to establish at Syracuse a constitution which would so far as possible conform to the theoretical views of Plato, and which would probably have taken the shape of a limited kingship, with some resemblance to the constitution of Sparta, and this could never have been brought about by a pure vote of the Syracusan people. The ideal constitution must be imposed upon them for their own good. The sole chance lay in persuading a tyrant to impose limitations on his own absolute power, and introduce the required constitution. Give me, says Plato himself, a city governed by a tyranny, and let the tyrant be young, with good brains, brave, and generous, and let fortune bring in his way a good lawgiver. Then a state has a chance of being well governed. Dion saw in young Dionysus a nature which might be molded as he wished, a nature, perhaps which he missed in his own nephews, Hipparinus and Nicaeus. He devoted himself loyally to Dionysus, who looked up to his virtue and experience, and he set himself to interest the young ruler in philosophy and make him to take a serious view of his duties. But his chief hope lay in bringing the tyrant under the attraction of the same powerful personality which had exercised a decisive and abiding influence over him. Plato must come to Syracuse and make the tyrant a philosopher. The treatment which Plato had experienced on the occasion of a previous visit to Sicily at the hands of the elder Dionysus was not indeed such as to encourage him to return. But he yielded, reluctantly, to the pressing invitation of the young ruler and the urgent solicitations of Dion, who represented that now, at last, the moment had come to call an ideal state into actual existence. It was the vision of a dreamer dreaming greatly, and that a statesman of Dion's practical experience and knowledge of human nature should have allowed himself to be guided by such a dream may seem strange to us, to us to whom the history of hundreds of societies throughout a period of more than 2,000 years has brought disillusion. It has indeed seemed so curious that some have concluded that Dion was throughout plotting to dethrone Dionysus, that the philosophical scheme was part of the plot, and Plato an unconscious tool of the conspiracy. But the good faith of Dion seems assured. We must remember that a state founded on philosophical principles was a new idea, which was not at all likely to seem foredoomed to failure to anyone who was enamored of philosophy, for such a state had never been tried and consequently there was no example of a previous failure. On the contrary, there was the example of Sparta as a success. The political speculators of those days always turned with special predilection to Sparta as a well-balanced state, and it was believed that her constitution and discipline had been called into being and established for all time by the will and fiat of a single extraordinarily wise lawgiver. Why then should not Dionysus and Dion, under the direction of Plato, do for Syracuse what Lysurgus had done for Lacedaemon. And Dion doubtless thought that his own experience would enable him to adjust the demands of speculation to the rude realities of existence. No welcome could have been more honorable and flattering than that which Plato received. He engaged the respect and admiration of Dionysus. 
and the young tyrant was easily brought to regard tyranny as a vile thing, and to cherish the plan of building up a new constitution. The experiment would probably have been tried, if Plato in dealing with his pupil had acted otherwise than he did. The nature of Dionysus was one of those natures which are susceptible of impression and capable of enthusiasm, but incapable of persevering application. If Plato had contented himself with inculculating the general principles which he has expounded with such charm in his Republic, Dionysus would in all likelihood have attempted to create at Syracuse a dim adumbration of the ideal state. It is hardly likely that it would have been long maintained. Still, it would at least have been essayed, but Plato insisted on imparting to his pupil a systematic course of philosophical training, and began with a science of geometry. The tyrant took up the study with eagerness. His court was absorbed in geometry, but he presently wearied of it. And then influences which were opposed to the scheme of Dion and Plato began to tell. One of the first acts of the new reign had been to recall from exile the historian Philistus. He was entirely adverse to the proposed reforms, and wished that the tyranny should continue on its old lines. He and his friends insinuated that the true object of Dion was to secure the tyranny for one of his own nephews, as soon as Dionysus had laid it down. They did everything to turn Dionysus against Dion, and at last an indiscreet letter of Dion gave them the means of success. Syracuse and Carthage were negotiating peace, and Dion wrote to the Carthaginian judges not to act without first consulting him. The letter was intercepted, and though its motive was doubtless perfectly honest, it was interpreted as treason. Dion was banished from Sicily, but was allowed to retain his property, and the party of Philistus won the upper hand. Plato remained for a while in the island. Dionysus was jealous of the esteem which he felt for Dion, and desired above all things to win the same esteem for himself. But the philosopher's visit had been a failure. He yearned to get back to Athens, and at length Dionysus let him go. So ended the notable scheme of founding an ideal state, the realization of which would have involved the disbandment of the mercenary troops, and thereby the collapse of the Syracusan Empire. It is easy to ridicule Plato for want of tact in his treatment of the young tyrant. It is easy to flout him as a pedant, for not distinguishing between an academy and a court. But Plato was perfectly right. The only motive which had brought him to Sicily was to prepare the way for founding a new state fashioned more or less according to his own ideals. Now, the first condition of the life of such a state was that a king should be a philosopher. Therefore, as Dionysus, not Plato, was to be king in the new state, it was indispensable that Dionysus should become a philosopher. Plato had not the smallest interest in imparting to the tyrant a superficial smattering of philosophy, enough to beguile him into framing a platonic state. For that state would have been stillborn, since it lacked the first condition of life, a true philosopher at its head. If Dionysus had not the stuff of a true, but only of a sham philosopher, it was useless to make the experiment. Plato adopted the only reasonable course. He was true to his own ideal. End of chapter 15, part 9. Recording by Paul Sutton.